I don't know how you feel about rain. Some of you are thinking, I hate it. Um, If you would have lived in Isaiah's day, you would have loved rain. Uh, your, Your leading daily fears would have been, what if it doesn't rain? Because no rain means drought, which means no food crops, which means famine. And of course, uh, drought and famines, devastatingly so, still occur to this day. I read the world record for the worst famine caused by a drought was in northern China in 1876 to 1879, when between 9 and 13 million people were estimated to have died after rains failed for three consecutive years. And then it was June 1879 that heavy rains began to shower down on that area. And with the harvest that came that fall, the famine was over. God's people living in the promised land in Canaan, learned the necessity of rain for their survival. Unlike Egypt, which had the Nile River, and unlike Mesopotamia, which had the Tigris and the Euphrates, Canaan only had rain, seasonal rain. And if the rains did not come, it meant drought and starvation. And so God's exiled people would have known well the blessing, the life-bringing necessity of rain. There is a famine of hearing the word of God in our day, which is why this passage is so important for us. Isaiah says that God's word is like rain. In what ways is the word of God like rain? Well, it is in fact an extended comparison that takes place in these two verses. First, it comes down from heaven. Just as the rain and the snow do not originate with us, but come from God. So the Bible has a divine origin and comes as a gift from God. God says, this is a word that goes out from my mouth. All scripture is breathed out by God, accurately delivered through human authors by the inspiration of the Spirit so that the Bible is the perfect, infallible, authoritative word of God himself. You know, one of of my favorite notes I've ever received as a pastor, uh, I received in 2010 from a girl in the church, from Patience Stagora, when she was young. Uh, The note said, you know, in lettering that had that uh, kid-like quality to it, it said, Mr. Melliner, I hope you preach what God said. And that was it. I thought, so do I, patience. You know, I don't know. I don't know. In fact, I'm comp- I don't think the note was intended as a threat, but that's how I like to read it. Like, you had better preach what God said, Mr. Melliner. We don't care about your ideas. We don't give us originality. We want the word of God. It isn't complicated, Mr. Melliner. Preach what God said. I hope you preach what God said. I just love that. Patience is like the sweetest girl. Of course, it wasn't a threat. Hope you preach what God said. 
Also, Isaiah says, not only does this word come down from heaven, but God's word is like rain in that it brings life and growth. Rains pour down and water the earth, we're told, making it bring forth and sprout. The Bible is what causes us to flourish in life. The Bible is what causes us to bear fruit. And like rain, that growth normally doesn't happen in an instant. It works through the patient work of the word over time. Rain feeds a crop and then it creates growth slowly. You can't see it before your eyes, but it happens over time. That is exactly how the word works in our lives. And God wants us to know that the word, like rain, provides for our daily needs, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The word of God is our daily bread by which we are sustained and comforted and strengthened and instructed on the path of obedience. God's word not only means that we have food for today, bread, we also have seed for next year's crop. As we take in God's word now, there is a preparation that God's doing in our lives for what he has for us in the future. The ultimate parallel between rain and God's word is that it is powerful to accomplish God's purposes. Theologians use a word here that isn't as popular today in our common vocabulary, but it's a word that I love. It's the word efficacy, the efficacy of scripture. It is a, it's a more formal and indeed much cooler way of talking about the, the uh, effectiveness of scripture, the effectiveness or efficiency efficacy of something is how well it works, the ability to get the job done, uh, to bring the desired results. So as you, here's what I do sometimes, when I open my Bible during the day or when we gather here or when you're in a Bible study, just remember that word efficacy, that the word of God is powerful, not just powerful, but powerful to accomplish what God intends for it to accomplish. It gets the job done. The word of God is powerful. This word never fails. And this is the word that is at work in us. This word is living and active. It will not fail, we are told, to accomplish God's purpose and succeed for the thing for which he sent it. There is a power to the word of God. You might remember Martin Luther's account of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, that massive revival that exposed the corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church that existed at that time and recovered the true gospel. How was that accomplished? Luther famously said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote about God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. He says, I did nothing. The word did it all. Now, we can say this about our life together as a church. Whatever our lives accomplish for the glory of God, we will reach the end of our lives and say, I did nothing, the word did it all. So great is the power of the spirit of God working through this word. Like rain that falls from heaven. 
And so Alec Motyer summarizes the comparison of rain with the word when he says there is a gift which comes from heaven. It is absolutely given. It does not return. Effectively brings life, making it bud and flourish and provides totally for human needs, seed and bread. The parallel between the life agency of rain and the effectiveness of the word is exact. Each has a heavenly originated power of effectiveness and neither fails. Now, I'm sure if we're Christians, we mentally assent to that truth. Yes, God's word possesses a heavenly originated power of effectiveness that never fails. But here's the thing. It is very difficult to maintain a functional faith in the power of God's word. Very difficult to maintain a functional faith. Too often, We value other things above the word. We look to other things for growth and guidance. And even what we care about in the church too often doesn't reflect the importance of God's word. We want certain experiences. We want programs. We want certain musical styles too often more than we want faithfulness to the word of God. And leaders, leaders will be tempted to simply do whatever is popular or whatever they are pressured to do rather than lead according to the word of God. In every difficulty, in every crisis and controversy, the word of God provides guidance. We stand on the word. And so we are known as a people of the word, called to be a people who live by God's word, who love God's word, and who approach it with confidence and with a sense of expectancy. God's word is powerful to accomplish God's purposes in us, and therefore we must be a people of the word. We will only bear fruit and grow as a church. We will only be faithful as a church to the degree that we give this word its proper place in our life together. We as a church want to be entirely and wholly shaped by the scriptures. So I want to take the remainder of the time that we have to look at three New Testament commands regarding scripture. And as we follow these commands, God's word will bear fruit and will accomplish the purposes that God has for it. So three points here. First, remember from whom you learned it. We heard this earlier in the reading, and I love, it's in 2 Timothy, when it describes the role Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, had in modeling the faith and in teaching him the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is one of life's great blessings to be raised in a Christian home, a home that models the Christian faith a home with parents who love the Bible. Moms, you have to remember that some things matter more than other things. 
our culture will tell you that everything matters. And it will tell you that a lot of things that don't really matter that much are really, really important. You don't have to be amazing at everything. The best thing that you can do for your kids is simply love the Lord and love his word. As you are able to help your kids to become acquainted with the sacred writings, because they are able to make our children wise for salvation. The whole book teaches that we are sinners in need of a savior and that Christ has accomplished this salvation in his death and resurrection. Your kids are growing up in a home in which they are hearing that truth and in which they have parents who are following this Lord, however imperfectly. It is one of life's greatest blessings. Remember from whom you learned it. I wonder, do you remember who first taught you the Bible? For those raised in Christian homes, I want to appeal to you to not turn away from the Bible that you learned from your mom. Don't turn away from the faith that she modeled and taught you. You will need to trust your parents more than you trust cultural trends and college professors and whatever you read on blogs, and your own changing feelings, doubts will come, but when they do, God says, remember from whom you learned it. And I say this, I have seen young people grow up and want to get rid of the faith of their parents. Faithful, God-honoring Christian upbringing, and you so readily abandon what you learned about the Bible at times even rejecting the church and even turning away from your own parents. I know your parents weren't perfect. None of us are. But if they are Christians, though they are imperfect, they held to a perfect word. And as with all parents, they are worthy to be honored as father and mother. I love what Kevin DeYoung says here. He says, it's not necessarily a sign of growth to move past the faith of your childhood and not necessarily a weakness to believe the same thing throughout your whole life. Because it's so popular, uh, so common. Everyone's doing this. You're raised in a Christian home. You see what your parents taught and believed in this particular area. And the instinct is we've moved beyond that. We're better than that. We're more impressive than that. We don't do it the way that they did it. It is not necessarily a sign of growth to move past the faith of your childhood and not necessarily a weakness to believe the same thing throughout your whole life. What an inestimable privilege to be acquainted from childhood with the sacred writings. The ultimate reason for Timothy to stick with the scripture goes far beyond Lois and Eunice, but at their feet is where he first learned to trust the word of God, which is no small thing and not to be tossed aside for anything in the world. Remember from whom you learned it. Second command, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. You may have noticed that our services are full of scripture. We intentionally begin our services with a scripture reading and we end our service with God's word. So we, have, we start our services, we have a gathering song that we've been doing for the past however many months that starts uh, early, starts before 10 o'clock. So that song and then uh, at 10 o'clock is when we have our call to worship from God's word. We do that because 
Our singing is a response to God's revelation of himself in his word. We gather around this word. And then at the end of our services, we send people out with a benediction, a blessing spoken over the people of God. And during the service, we sing God's word, we preach God's word, and we have each week an extended scripture reading Uh, distinct from the reading of the sermon text, which normally happens during the singing. This is in 1 Timothy 4.13, where Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. I find that Christians haven't always given thought to this area, but we believe that the extended public reading of Scripture is uniquely uniquely edifying to the people of God. And it should be something that is greatly anticipated every Sunday. I love the way that this church, the way that all of you respond to God's word. When we listen to someone read, we listen expecting for the spirit of God to encounter us in that moment. We expect God to make himself known. And when we read aloud together, we read passionately knowing this is the word that brings life and growth. This word is accomplishing God's purposes. This word is changing us. And so for all who are here, even if they are, are new to Christianity or are not Christians, they see a love and a passion for God's word, a church that is built around God's word. The, uh, the charismatic author and pastor, Andrew Wilson, you might know his name. He recently wrote a book that talks about the Sunday gatherings of the church. It's called Spirit and Sacrament. And he says, and he's correct, that the church today needs to eagerly desire prophecy and tongues and interpretation and healing and miracles and the filling of the spirit and all of God's good gifts. We believe that. And he sees a desperate need to recover that in the church today. But he also talks about how we need to rethink our approach to the public reading of scripture. Uh, Wilson talks about how we tend to be more shaped by our experience than we are shaped by what scripture says about what we do when we gather. So he says, many evangelicals do not register the public reading of scripture as a distinct aspect of Christian worship, since in their experience, scripture is only ever read as a preamble to a sermon. Did you know one of the main ways that God has always met with his people throughout salvation history is through the public reading of scripture. At Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. The picture in Deuteronomy 31 is glorious. It's this beautiful picture of the gathered people of God. It says in Deuteronomy 31, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. You might remember as well, central to Ezra's recovery of the law of God was the place that the divine word occupied in public worship. Nehemiah 8 says that day by day, Ezra read the entirety of the law of God 
to the people as they gathered. Long before the New Testament, the Old Testament was read Sabbath by Sabbath, each time picking up where they left off. In Jewish worship, there were two regular readings in each service, one from the law, the book of Moses, and one from the prophets. Now, what we have to understand is that it is with all of that Old Testament historical context and tradition informing the command that Paul says, devote yourself. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. God says this tradition of devotion to public reading that has always marked my people is to continue in the church of Christ. And so, This is precisely what we've seen throughout the history of the Christian church. I was thrilled uh, to learn recently that some of you have been reading uh, Needham's, Nick Needham's, N.R. Needham's, uh, N-E-E-D-H-A-M, his church history books called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. I've just seen this showing up in a number of conversations. He explains, uh, among overview of all the, the history of the church, He explains in that book, the first volume, the gatherings of the early church in the second century. This is our history as the people of God. And he talks about the pattern of three readings that they had in each service, one from the Old Testament, one from the Gospels, one from elsewhere in the New Testament. And then you see, if you're familiar with the history of the church, continuing through the Middle Ages, the Reformers and the Puritans, public readings from both Testaments in each gatherings, they did at least a chapter from each testament, um, was a valued part of the worship of God's people. And in fact, here's something that has occurred to me. It is only very recently in the history of Christ's church that you can attend the average Christian service and hear so little of the reading of God's word. You know, in fact, this occurred to me as well. I'm just gonna go ahead and say this. A lot of Christians today would have not enjoyed being a part of one of Paul's New Testament churches. Either you wouldn't have enjoyed the amount of charismatic activity. Some of you would be like, I'm out. But Paul said, eagerly desire it. Or you wouldn't have enjoyed the amount of scripture reading throughout the service. You might've noticed we as a church, what I'm doing is not giving an apologetic for anything other than what we are currently doing and why we do this. We have increased intentionally the amount of public readings we do on Sunday mornings. And the more we've done this as a church, the more I am convinced that the public reading of scripture is one of the best things we can do to cultivate a community of the word. These, these readings I see have the potential because I sit down, uh, this is Joseph and I primarily doing this. We sit down and we plan the next quarter of the year of what the scripture readings will be. And we do that praying for you. We do that anticipating how God is going to use his word to bring life and growth and to minister to his people. We see so much good that can be accomplished through this. You know, some, some Christians may not know the music We sing or prefer the style we use, but I guarantee you they will recognize the voice of God in the reading of his word. Some Christians might not spend much time in God's word during the week, but they will hear plenty of it when we gather. And Lord willing, it will kindle your appetite to read on your own. The the public reading of scripture is an affirmation of the perspicuity, the clarity 
of Scripture, reminding Christians that they are not dependent upon explanations from teachers in order to discover the truth and to benefit from reading God's Word. The Word of God can stand alone, which means you can read it on your own during the week. And our public readings encourage you to read not just the familiar sections of Scripture, but to read the whole counsel of God because that's what you hear us reading. So through this summer, here's an idea that we had and what we're gonna do. What we wanna do through this summer, we're gonna continue on in Scripture readings as we have, but in the summer, our public Scripture readings are going to focus on 12 books of the Bible called the Minor Prophets, those shorter prophets. And we want that to be a way that we are ministering the whole counsel of God, that we are encouraging you to read all of scripture. And that as our Isaiah series comes to a close at the end of summer, we are expanding our understanding of the whole prophetic literature. I would love to see a revival of reading God's word aloud not just in our Sunday services, but in small groups and in homes and everywhere. The efficacy of scripture means that the public reading of the written word is powerful to save the lost and to sanctify and transform God's people. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And the third and last command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word dwell in you, literally, let the word make a house in you. So, Paul is saying that our gatherings as a church and our lives as his people should be making a house for God's word. And we do this through our teaching, through scripture readings, through singing, through our prayers. The vision is nothing less than being a community of the word. What does it mean to be a community of the word? It means that we preach this word. Later this year, you might wonder where we're going. We um, will have a, a mini series after we finish Isaiah, but then shortly after that, later in the fall, we will begin our next book of the Bible, which is the book of Colossians. Uh, that will go into the new year. Prepare your hearts and anticipate how God will meet us in that short but glorious book of Colossians. To be a community of the word, we test all things by the word. What we need is that Berean mindset. You know what that's a reference to? In Acts 17, 11, Paul and Silas were in Berea and it says this uh, of the people who were there. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. May it be for us as a church. Receive the word eagerly examine the word daily and test all teaching by the word of God. And to be a community of the word, we study God's word together. The word plays a role in our small groups. We meet for Bible studies. We grow in our knowledge of God's word. 
I believe we made you aware, but I wanted to mention this because I'm looking forward to it. At the end of September, we are hosting a Gospel Coalition Conference for Women. It's an event, uh, a two-day intensive, to equip women in the Word. So there will be, I believe it's around 10 different women teaching different tracks that you can sign up for. The three keynote sessions are on Colossians, which will be perfect timing to help us prepare for our series that begins not too long after that. So if you go onto the Gospel Coalition website, look for their women's events, you'll be able to see the event that we're hosting at Covenant Fellowship. We also become a community of the Word as we read the Word for ourselves. Uh, I have been so tremendously encouraged. A number of you have come to me asking what in-depth commentary I recommend for the book of Isaiah or for some other book of the Bible. And I've heard of those of you who are reading through, studying a book of the Bible, but you're going deeper into God's word. You are examining it. You are studying it. You are meditating upon it. You are memorizing the word of God. Many of us have found Bible reading plans helpful. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife Megan heard about a summer Bible reading plan for women. And so she's going to be doing that this summer. And she printed out a bunch of copies to hand out to friends. And I said, you should print out a whole bunch more copies and we can put them at the uh, center table back there. And so that's what we did at the Welcome Center. We have those Bible reading plans for this summer for women. Anyone who wants to can join in that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. God's word is powerful to accomplish God's purposes in us. And therefore, we must be a people of the word. Let me close with a story from the boxer George Foreman. Foreman is a two-time heavyweight champion, Olympic gold medalist, and most importantly, promoter of the George Foreman Grill. Um, He wrote a book, He wrote a book, God in My Corner, but he says this in there. In 1974, before I went to Africa to fight Muhammad Ali, a friend gave me a Bible to take along on my trip. He said, George, keep this with you for good luck. Uh, Foreman says, I believe the Bible was just a shepherd's handbook, probably because the only verse I knew was the Lord is my shepherd. But I was always looking for luck, so I carried that Bible with me. I had lucky pennies and good luck charms. So now I added the lucky Bible to my collection of superstitious items. And he says this, after I lost the fight, I threw the Bible away. I never even opened it. I thought the Bible didn't help me win, so why do I need it? I thought I'd get power simply from owning it. I didn't realize that I needed to read it and believe what he says. And he says, he's come to understand that there is indeed power in this book, but it's not a good luck charm. The power of God's word is that it comes down from heaven like rain. The power of God's word is that it reveals our sin and the glory of what Christ has done for sinners. The power of God's word is that it does indeed bring life and growth, making it bring forth and sprout. The word of God pours down like rain with effectual power to accomplish the purposes of God. Friends, the greatest power we have is the power of God's word. 
Remember from whom you learned it. Love with wholehearted devotion, the public reading of Scripture, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that together we experience as the people of God the life-changing, transforming effect of his word in our lives. Amen.